It's time for your local weekly analysis, Slow County Public Policy and the Law, with your host, Stu Jenkins. The Union Forever, hurrah, boys, hurrah, down with the traitor. Welcome to Slow County Public Policy and the Law, only at KNews 98.5, broadcasting from the great metropolis of Santa Margarita. I'm Stu Jenkins. As a lawyer, I help people protect their families and real estate with their estate plans. Since 1978, I have tried Slow County court cases that have struck down unconstitutional election laws, city ordinances criminalizing homelessness, and the Bureau of Cannabis Control's authorization of cannabis billboards on Highway 101. It has been my privilege to repeatedly serve as Superior Court Special Master. I bring you officials, lawyers, and organizations shaping public policy and law here on Slow County Public Policy and the Law. Last week, I spoke with former Grover Beach Mayor Debbie Peterson about her book, The Happiest Corruption, that tracks endemic corruption in San Luis Obispo County governments. And I introduced to our listeners Heather Moreno, Mayor of Atascadero and a knowledgeable candidate campaigning for 5th District County Supervisor at the March 5th, 2024 election. If you missed those important policy perspectives, log into the podcast of last week's interview at knews985.com. Then click on the tab for Slow County Public Policy and the Law and scroll down to the latest podcasts. Today, in this hour, I am looking forward, happily, to talking with local lawyer James Wolfe. James Wolfe is a certified specialist in immigration and naturalization law, who practices right here in San Luis Obispo County. In my second hour, I will converse with Andrew Russell about the sleeper Supreme Court case decided at the end of June, Mallory versus Norfolk Railway Company. Anyhow... James, welcome to the show. So glad you consented to come in and talk to our listeners about immigration law. That's an important subject on the Central Coast. And uh, how, how long have you been practicing? Well, thank you, Stu. Um, glad to be here. I've been practicing, let's see, I think this will be 35 years by next November. Okay. Yep. Where are you from originally? I'm, I'm from San Luis Obispo, went to San Luis Obispo High, went to Cal Poly, um, then went to Georgetown for a bachelor's in foreign service. Um, then I went into the Peace Corps in the Philippines for three years. Wow. Um, and then after that experience, I went to UC Davis for a law degree and an MBA, and I've been practicing ever since. Well, that's a, a good route into immigration and natural naturalization law. Well, it is. You know, yeah. there's so many things that people asked me. Um, at that time, there were still refugee bases in the Philippines uh, for people who were fleeing from Vietnam. Sure. And so that was an issue there. And when I came back here, it's uh, asylum and refugee issues are still uh, really important here. Is that what got you interested in, in immigration law? It was. Um, you know, I wanted to get into an area of law that... Um, my clients would be from all over the world and all different walks of life, and immigration certainly fits that bill. Now, uh, uh, with that worldwide perspective, where is your office? Uh, it's in the megalopolis, not a metropolis, <laughs> of Los Osos. <laughs> and and um, 
you know, I always like to introduce where our radio tower is mm-hmm. in Santa Margarita. Uh, we are actually uh, chatting here in, just south of the airport in San Luis Obispo. Right. And uh, uh, I don't think a lot of people know that uh, there's immigration services available in, in Los Osos or in many of the cities hereabouts. Now, what, what uh, I imagine immigration law is a fairly wide spectrum of kinds of things and right. services that you do right. for people. Well, the reason I'm in Los Osos is because I grew up here and um, lived in the Bay Area and practiced law for many years up there and then moved back here in 2008. Um, and that was just at the beginning of being able to work remotely. So I kept my main office in the Bay Area and then uh, worked from home from here and um, just stayed ever since because this is a great place to, to live and sure. to have kids to grow up. So um, the types of work that I do uh, are for clients who are all over the country. And even before moving out of the Bay Area, most of my clients were not even in the Bay Area. They were in different parts of the country, different parts of the world. And so um, I do help uh, people who, we call it family immigration, where you're trying to petition for a family member to come here, and also uh, people who are applying for citizenship to, go, to adjust their status from being a permanent resident to uh, being a citizen. Um, but most of my work is involved in employment or investment immigration. Those clients are all over the place. In fact, I have very few clients from the Central Coast. Well, when you say employment and immigration, that that has to do with making sure that a business has the ability to hire uh, skilled workers that can meet their needs, even though those workers are from out of the country. Yeah. The, the challenge with that one, though, is that there's a quota or a limit on how many people can be approved each year. I see. And that limit is super small when you've got a country of 330 million people. The quota for that working visa, which is called an H-1B, is less than 100,000. So um, it's the laws. The law is on the books and um, just based on Congress is passing different restrictions against immigration. That's one of them. So, well, that that 100,000 people who have a chance per year to get a work visa, basically. Are there differences between which countries they can be from or be no, citizens of? No, it can be any country. It is for jobs that require a specialized bachelor's degree. Okay. And so it can't be for any particular type of job. It, so it's it not a plumbing be, job no, necessarily. No, no. Um, so most of them, probably 75% of them are in the computer sciences, mm-hmm. software engineer, hardware engineer, that type of thing. But the trouble is there's, as you can imagine, there's way more than 100,000 openings for that type of position and as a result there's a lottery and so you might be the most qualified person in the world a nobel prize winner but you don't get selected for the lottery you don't get a visa you also said a lot of your work is in investment immigration right what what is that so since 1990 there's been an opportunity for people to get permanent residence or a green card based on investing in the u.s and creating 10 jobs So it has to be investment in a business. It can't just be buying a house uh, or something like that. And that business needs to create 10 new jobs for U.S. workers. Interesting. So, And uh, those 10 new jobs can't also be uh, immigration visas? No, they have to be U.S. workers. U.S.-based citizens. Yeah, people who are already here. Okay, okay. Yeah. And and uh, now when when you're talking about the family immigration, Mm -hmm. uh, what, what is that? 
So uh, family immigration would be sponsoring a, a parent, spouse, or child uh, to come into the U.S. So, for example, someone may come into the U.S. based on um, uh, an employment sponsorship, and they get a green card, they get permanent residence, and then they go back to their home country and get married. They want to bring their spouse here. Then that's the kind of thing that uh, family immigration is about. Okay. Um, so, or if they adopt a child from overseas, bringing that child over. Um, you can also, if you are a U.S. citizen, you could petition for your uh, siblings, your brothers or sisters, and sponsor them so that way a whole family could come over. Okay. So, so once, uh, if somebody has immigrated here and they've been able to be naturalized, then they can actually petition to get uh, their brothers or sisters or... That's right. Parents, spouse, parents. child, or okay. uh, siblings. Yep. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Well, folks, you are listening to Slow County Public Policy and the Law, and we're having a, uh, a real interesting discussion with James Wolfe, who is a certified specialist in immigration law. Now, if somebody wanted to contact you, James, and talk to you at your office, what's your phone number? Uh, probably the best way would be to contact me through my website, and ah. there's a, a way you can set up an appointment online. So okay. the website is slobusinesslawyer.com. SLO Business Lawyer. That's right. It's, it's a secret. <laughs> it's not SLO Immigration <laughs> Lawyer. And the reason for that is that this website is directed to um, people locally, mm -hmm. and there's simply not that much immigration work going on locally. It's mostly business um, type of uh, lawyering work, and that's what I offer locally. If you're interested in the investment immigration, I have another website, and that would be uh, eb5impact.com. EB5, I bet that's uh, similar to a statute or a regulation. That's right. That's the, um, the shorthand version of investment immigration. Now, um, when you're uh, actually helping people, are you having to go to federal court, or do you do this through agency All uh, right. uh, contact? So um, initially, you have to file a petition uh, with the Immigration Service. It's all filed remotely. Mm -hmm. uh, back in the old days, when I was just starting out as a junior lawyer, you actually had to go into an immigration office. Sure. Um, but that's not the case anymore. Um, I have had um, started to go into federal court for mandamus actions in which you um, uh, file, you're basically suing the federal government to make them take action on a petition that's been pending too long. You're, you're asking the court to make them follow the law. That's right. And uh, mandamus is a fancy old uh, English Latin word for making somebody do something. Right. And uh, it's just the opposite of uh, prohibition, which is a fancy way of saying stop that. Right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> So the uh, now, how long do these kinds of processes typically take? Ah, so um, it takes a long time. Um, there's a there's an overall quota of how many people can immigrate into the U.S. each year, um, and it's about five hundred thousand. So there's a hundred thousand that can come in for a work visa. Well, that's a separate quota. That's for a temporary oh. work permit. For the okay. permanent work permit, for the green card, Okay. Uh, there's about half a million. And um, it's divided according to country of birth and type of sponsorship. So 
the longest uh, sponsorship waiting list is for people who are sponsoring a sibling hmm. and from the Philippines. And at, I think they're currently, they um, are processing people who filed in the 1980s. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So it's... People die before they ever get their... Well, uh, yeah. And, um, you know, that's kind of when I started out as practicing. Yeah. And uh, some of those people are still are arriving now and they're already retired and, you know, their children are grown up and moved away. <laughs> it's like, oh what was the whole point of all this? Yeah. 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 So that's just one of the many ways that immigration is broken. And that's the legal immigration side that doesn't work. So... Folks, uh, you're listening to James Wolfe, who's a certified uh, specialist in immigration and naturalization law. James, the, uh, you know, we are public policy and the law mm-hmm. here uh, at K News 98.5. You have a long perspective in this particular field. Uh, are there policies uh, that you feel that the uh, federal government could improve on? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, uh, the big issue with, well, there's two sides of immigration. We call it legal immigration, which is what we've been talking about, how someone can go through the legal process to get permanent residence or a work permit, and then the the non-legal or undocumented illegal immigration. Mm -hmm. Um, On the legal side, the main policy reform would be to have the number of people come into the U.S. based on maybe the unemployment rate. So that when the unemployment is high, we shouldn't let more people in to take up jobs. When, in, when unemployment is low, you should allow more people in so the economy can keep growing. There's a lot of sectors of the U.S. economy that are not growing, and it's directly related to the inability to hire people. Um, and so immigration can be a great way to allow the uh, economy to continue to grow. You know, one of the things that we were looking at during COVID, and I think even today, is the lack of truck drivers. And in truck drivers, people just don't want to do that anymore. At this stage of America's economy, it's not an attractive position. Pays well. And then at the same time, you know, you had hundreds of thousands of people who want to come into the U.S. from uh, Latin America or the Caribbean. Many of them know how to drive a truck. But no, we can't bring them in. Yeah. So it's not a skilled yeah. worker. And, and uh, we have a very low unemployment rate right now. Right. In fact, the, uh, the Fed, uh, Federal Reserve, is trying to get the unemployment rate up. Right. Which uh, I, I never understand that as a policy. Hmm. Uh, being, you know, it's, I think the, uh, even Alexander Hamilton thought uh, a little inflation is good for the country. Right. And unemployment, uh, you know, should be as low as 1% or 2% if you can get there. Right. Um, those were his views uh, at the founding. Yeah. The, the uh, I, I think a lot of people are afraid that somehow if we open the doors of, to immigrants that somehow they'll be out of work. Um, uh, it, how do you see that we should be uh, giving people the information that help them see that that may be a false fear? Well, if you look at it, I think we do have an open door policy right now. But I, that door is the Rio Grande River. And if you're brave enough to swim across and you make it across, the door is open. 
And well, well it, and, you know, I, I had the uh, privilege of being the Democratic nominee for state assembly here back in 2004, and immigration was a big issue then. And uh, they, it uh, seemed to me that there were forces that wanted to bring in people under the table right. to work uh, at very low wages and uh, under threat of deportation if they complained. Right. Uh, and yet um, there was almost no punishment for the people who basically brought in folks, had them working uh, at surf-like conditions. Mm-hmm and uh, with the threat of deportation if they complained about anything. Right. Um, And yet, uh, you know, there was no real significant government policy that would punish the invitors, the businesses that invited these people in. Has that changed at all? Um, There are penalties on the books, but the enforcement is pretty mediocre. You know, I think you'll hear once or twice a year of a big immigration raid, um, in the past, there have been like companies that do make pallets for agricultural use and yeah. things like that. And it's really just a matter of they'll have a, one or two big busts to try to discourage the rest of the employers in the country not to do it. But I think the... Um, but the, know, the busts are of the people who are working. Yeah. Not and so then, much, I haven't heard of the busts being a punishment for the no, there's employers. Just, yeah, there's just civil fines. And and some companies have. In fact, Walt Disney Corporation got fined for undocumented people. Did, did they? Yeah. Okay. But it's, you know, for a multi-billion dollar company, a $10,000 fine is not significant. So they continue to do it. Just the cost of doing business. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Folks, you're uh, listening to Slow County Public Policy and the Law. I'm having a good discussion here with certified specialist in immigration and naturalization law, James Wolfe who hails from Los Osos, California. Um, James, the, uh, the what are the other areas, uh, when, when you're talking about helping people with investment, uh, how much of your business is uh, that hmm. today? Uh, probably about, I don't know, a quarter of what I do is the investment immigration. Um, it's much more complicated. Uh, basically, the investor has to show their legal source of funds. Um, the minimum investment amount um, is 800000 And so you have to document where all that $800,000 came from. Uh, so all the documentation comes from overseas. You need to understand foreign banking systems. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to show that it was legally transferred to the U.S., so you have to understand how... Uh, funds transfers work. Um, and you have to understand how to present that to the uh, immigration services so they can understand it. Right, right. Yeah, and one of the challenges with, um, you know, talk about policy, uh, that immigration has struggled to do for forever is to digitize. So really? um, all of this documentation, and you have to go back 15 years for the financial documentation. Wow. So can you imagine your own all of your financial records, every bank statement, paycheck, tax returns going back 15 years, when you file it with immigration, it's all on paper. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I had, Reams and reams of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I had one um, that I filed a guy from India, and um, it was literally three feet tall stack of paper. 
that we had to send into immigration. We've been begging them for years, can't we file it digitally? You know, the IRS allows digital, federal courts allow digital. Oh no, we Federal courts require digital. (laughs) They require digital, exactly. So anyway, that's just one of the many dysfunctions. And and, and, um, is the, are the immigration services sufficiently funded so they have enough personnel to actually review these uh, kinds of applications and all that paperwork on on a timely basis? Well, it's interesting. On the legal immigration side, it's all supported by user fees. It is. It's not supported by taxpayers. Okay. But just for whatever reason, when they still have to submit their budget to Congress for approval Mm -hmm. of how much they expect to get in user fees, they never charge enough. And so... This uh, Congress passed a law um, a year ago in which they required immigration to charge the correct user fees so they can do these cases within six months. And so... Um, Have you seen a change? No. They were supposed to submit their plan, I think it was by March of this year, on how they're going to do that, but they didn't do it. So still paper. And, um, these, and this is the investment in immigration applications. Um, they are working on cases that were filed in, I think it's 2016. Wow. Yeah, seven years to wow. open the mail. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not even supported by the taxpayers. This is supposed to be user fees, like you would pay to enter in the National Park Service. You pay as you go, supports it that way, but they just don't charge enough, and so it doesn't happen. doesn't happen. And... Uh, Well, uh, I'm going to take a quick break here from this good discussion we're having to let people know about uh, upcoming shows, James. All right. Uh, Folks, you're listening to James Wolf, a certified specialist in immigration and naturalization law here on Slow County Public Policy and the Law. I'm your host, Stu Jenkins. Next week, be sure to tune in Saturday, July 22nd, We will hear from two leaders of Meals on Wheels. Then I will give Slow County City Councilwoman Andy Pease the chance to tell us why the city is working to substitute electricity for natural gas in your home and business. So, James, stick around. We're going to have a little break for news and some very important ads, I might say. Stay tuned, folks.